You have heard that it was been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. I'm out of the pulpit one week, and when I come back, they have a giant clock in the back. What is going on with that? I guess they really want us to know the time up here. Of course, they could put in an alert that lets me know my microphone's not on, but instead they put a clock. Isn't it wonderful to be here today, though? If the uh, camera's not on the wide screen, please pull it out so that uh, these bags can be seen by those who are at home, because this is a wonderful service opportunity right before you. We are grateful to everyone who has contributed items to go in these appreciation bags and to all of our members and, and guests alike that came up here yesterday and helped assemble these bags. But now there is a final step, and that is for the distribution of these bags. These bags have been assembled to show appreciation to people who are in the delivery industry, whether that be the postal worker who brings you your mail every day, or the UPS driver, FedEx driver, Amazon driver who brings you packages. These are meant to be given to those individuals who are serving you on a regular basis. So we encourage you to grab some bags, take them home, give them to those delivery workers, those delivery personnel, and let's get them distributed and show our appreciation to those individuals as we have to others in the past. Take as many as you need and... Uh, uh, be sure to uh, thank those people for what they do. This is our ongoing service project, and these bags will stay up here until they're all gone. And I want to move about the stage, so let's get rid of them quickly. <laughs> we also want to remind you that tonight we continue our um, monthly rotation of services. Tonight will be a prayer-focused service. We will continue with our theme of intimacy in the home, and tonight we're going to be praying about such intimacy now that we have studied it and talked about it and sung about it. So please return tonight as we continue that emphasis on intimacy in the home. And one thing we've noticed with this Sunday night emphasis on intimacy 
is that love is at the heart of such intimacy. And the thing about love is that it's the most important thing we do as Christians. At least that's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, when a scribe asked him which commandment is the most important of all. And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, I don't believe any of us would disagree with Jesus regarding what the most important command is. However, some of us might wish he had given some exceptions because sometimes we encounter people who are hard to love. I'm reminded of a story I heard about a man whose wife was listless and seemed depressed, so he took her to the doctor. They gave her a checkup. They ran a whole bunch of tests. The checkup showed that she was in good health and all the test results came back normal. And the doctor said there is no underlying medical condition. So the husband asked them, why does she seem so unhappy all the time? The doctor asked the woman to stand up and he gave her a great big bear hug, which immediately caused her to brighten up. And the doctor said to the husband, did you see that? Your wife needs this at least three times a week. And the husband said, well, I can bring her on Tuesday and Thursday, but the rest of the week I'm playing golf. (laughs) And that silly story illustrates the point that some people are hard to love. And if you don't understand, it's not the wife in that story that was hard to love. I'm certain all of us have encountered such a person. Amen? Sarah, you don't have to agree so aggressively. (laughs) We've all had people in our lives who were hard to love. Sometimes people are hard to love because of their character. There are some people whose character is just so difficult. Maybe it's because of personality traits. Maybe it's because of their morality or immorality. I believe such could be the case for one individual in the Bible named Hosea. He was instructed by God to marry a woman named Gomer. But more importantly, we find out that Gomer was a promiscuous woman, according to Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2. And yet God instructed Hosea to marry this woman. If you continue reading their story through the first three chapters of that book, you'll find out that at some point in time, Hosea, excuse me, Gomer returned to her lifestyle of promiscuity. There's a point at which she abandoned her family, she quit on her marriage, and she went back into a life of prostitution such that she would have to be purchased in order to return home. Her immoral character presented a lot of difficulties, a lot of hardships for Hosea. And Hosea had a hard-to-love individual. 
And so it may be that someone's personalities or habits or lack of morals are irritating or offensive to you, and that makes them hard to love. And sometimes people are hard to love because of the circumstances. Sometimes the situation that we are dealing with makes other individuals hard to love. I'm sure 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon on I-85 is a hard time to love people. But I'm also reminded of a situation that Jonathan found himself in in 1 Samuel. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1 that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. But I believe Jonathan might have found David hard to love, not because of David, but because of the circumstances. You see, at two chapters earlier, David had been anointed the next king of Israel. That was supposed to be what Jonathan was anointed for. And Jonathan's dad, the current king named Saul, did not want David to be the next king. And he did everything in his power to prevent that, even going so far as to try and kill David on multiple occasions. I imagine in a household where your dad, and did I mention that David became Jonathan's brother-in-law? David married one of Saul's daughters? I can't imagine that inside a home where your dad wants to kill your brother-in-law. And what's interesting is that there is an occasion where Jonathan goes to, to, before Saul on, in David's defense. And Saul realized that Jonathan had protect, protected David from him. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 30, we find out that Saul's anger was kindled not against David, but against Jonathan. And in verse 33, that anger erupted to the point that Saul hurled a spear at his own son. Can you imagine loving someone in such circumstances where your life is threatened because of it? See, sometimes we have situations that make it very difficult to love someone. Nothing to do with that person, everything to do with the situation. And sometimes people are hard to love because of their choices. I believe such was the case for Joseph when it came to his brothers. Joseph's brothers were jealous of their father's affection for him. They hated him, we're told. And because of their jealousy and hatred, Joseph's brothers captured him and sold him into slavery when he was just a young man. Several years later, after Joseph had endured numerous ups and downs in life, he encountered his brothers again while he was administering the distribution of food stockpiles in Egypt during a severe famine. And when we, he saw them again, we're told that he treated them like strangers. He spoke roughly to them. He accused them of being spies. He imprisoned them for three days. He forced them to endure a series of tests and ultimately, ultimately played mind games with them. You know what that tells me? It 
tells me that Joseph was dealing with some wounds. That Joseph was hurting. So it may be that someone has wronged you in the past like Joseph's brothers did him. That those wounds have not necessarily healed and it makes it hard to love that individual. And I believe that such stories are preserved in God's word because he knew we would encounter people who are hard to love. And he wanted us to know that we're not the first. And we won't be the last. But God doesn't just intend for us to be comforted by the presence of hard to love people in the Bible. He wants us to also be confronted by his instructions and expectations regarding the hard to love. Because when you really study love in Scripture, you find out that love is meant to be hard. And this morning, what I want to do with the rest of our time is is I want us to look at the references to the love your neighbor command that appear in the New Testament. Because aside from Jesus stating it as part of the greatest command, there are at least six different times it is commented upon throughout the text of the New Testament. And I want us to consider the implication of several of those references. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 5, where we read a moment ago our scripture reading. Because in Matthew chapter 5, particularly in verses 43 through 48, Jesus updated the application of the love your neighbor command. In the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may Be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here Jesus updated the love your neighbor policy to include love your enemies. Why? Because our application of loving our neighbors is too easy. Most of the love we extend toward others is based on the return we expect to receive. The reciprocity principle, if you will. I love you because you're going to love me in return. That is often how our minds work when it comes to love. You can see it manifested at Christmas when you send out your Christmas cards. Because you send out Christmas cards expecting to get Christmas cards in return. Well, I'll tell you this, you will never get a Christmas card from the Rye family because we're too lazy to do it. (laughs) And now my wife is upset at me. I am hard to love. Ben, watch your tongue. (laughs) But we have this reciprocity we expect with love. I love you, so you have to love me in return. But Jesus says that's too simple. 
As one preacher said, love is too expensive to waste on bad investments. That's why we, we expect it to be reciprocated. But Jesus said that sinners, that unbelievers, that those not following him are capable of loving their neighbors who love them in return. So Jesus ups the ante, so to speak. He indicates that the reciprocity principle for love is no longer acceptable. He says that it's not enough to love those who love you in return. And that's why he instructs us to love our enemies. To love those who are actively opposed to loving us. He's challenging us to a higher standard of love, a standard that does not pick and choose who to love, but instead loves without discrimination. And that's the point that James, the brother of Jesus, makes in James chapter 2. If you turn over there to verses 8 through 13 of that chapter. James appeals to the love your neighbor command here. Look at what he says beginning in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor. Of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The Greek word translated as partiality or favoritism, depending on which translation you're reading, refers to being a respecter of persons or even casting judgment on people. So what James is saying here is that as Christians, We're to be like Planet Fitness, a judgment-free zone. He's saying that when it comes to love, you can't show partiality. You can't pick and choose. You can't say, I'm going to love this person but not that person. It doesn't work that way. In fact, James doesn't just prohibit showing partiality. He calls it sin. If you say, I'm going to love this person, but not that person, guess what you have done? You have sinned. And you know what? It happens too often in the home. We make decisions that we're not going to love someone in the home. Either because they're not returning the love, or because they've done something undeserving of love. And isn't James calling that sin? Think back to the greatest command for a moment. As we contemplate this idea of showing partiality, why is it a sin? Well, if you think back to the greatest command, before it commands us to neighbor love, it commands all-encompassing love of God. And such love leads us to strive to be like God. When you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're going to want to be like God. It's going to consume you. Or God's going to consume you, I should say. Now consider for a moment what God is like when it comes to love. Peter declared in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, 
that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God shows no partiality. Paul twice wrote, once in Romans chapter 2, 11, and again in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6, that God shows no partiality. And if you return to our passage in Matthew chapter 5 and pay attention to verses 44 and 45, as Jesus calls on us to love our enemies, in essence, to show no partiality with love, he says this, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father, so that you'll be like your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Both receive his blessings. It doesn't matter, evil or good, just or unjust, because God is impartial, is impartial. And so what James and Jesus are saying is that love is a universal moral absolute. That means it is always right to love. And it is always wrong not to love. But that's not the only thing that we need to know about love today. That's not the only reason Love is hard. Because not only did Jesus update the application of the love your neighbor command, but he updated the definition of the love your neighbor command. In Luke chapter 10, we read one of the most popular, if not the most popular, popular parable of Jesus. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's prompted by a conversation between Jesus and a teacher of the law in which the love your neighbor command is brought up. So we begin reading in Luke chapter 10 at verse 25. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? That's when Jesus launched into this parable, a parable that you're likely familiar with. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest who was going down that road, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, putting oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. 
Much can be and has been said about this parable, but let me narrow our focus today. See, this parable teaches us that the love your neighbor command implies the active, intentional pursuit of others' good. When you look at the parable and you compare the Samaritan to the priest and the Levite, what makes him different is that he saw this guy and did something about his situation. Active, intentional, good. It's important for us to recognize that distinction. Because you can go over to Romans chapter 13, where another reference to the love your neighbor command is given. And Paul issues these words, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's making the same appeal that Jesus made, the same appeal that James made, that love is the basis of the law. But look at verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, I wholeheartedly agree with what Paul says. I disagree with the way we often interpret that. Because our minds often think that if I just don't do wrong to somebody, then I'm loving them. That loving people equals not doing wrong to them. And that's all that there is. But the Good Samaritan says differently. And it's evident when you look at Jesus' application of the Good Samaritan. In verse 36, after Jesus told the parable, he says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the correct response was given, the one who showed him mercy. In other words, the one who loved his neighbor was the one who sought the, the intentional good of his neighbor, who actively participated in good for his neighbor. The Good Samaritan wasn't just, hey, I'm not going to do any wrong here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pass by and say a prayer, and, and I won't do any wrong to my neighbor. No, 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 that wasn't enough. He showed him mercy. That's how he loved hard. And notice how Jesus concluded. He did not say you go and feel likewise. He did not say you go and think likewise. He said you go and do likewise. The love we are called to possess for our neighbors must be more than a feeling or an emotion. It is expected to be an action. That's why John said in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18, Let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. I'm afraid that all too often, in our homes and outside our homes, we relegate love to just not offending and doing wrong. And we forget that involves our active pursuit of good for the other person. You see, love is hard. And that brings us to one final account in which Jesus updated the standard of the love your neighbor command. 
It's in John chapter 13. When Jesus, is, Jesus washes the disciples' feet at that last supper, he rises from having done so, and then he says these words, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I must admit that nowhere in this text does Jesus say love your neighbor. He says love one another multiple times. However, when you understand why Jesus calls this a new commandment, it's easy to connect the dots to the love your neighbor command. See, at first glance, this command may not seem new simply because the love your neighbor command has been around since the beginning of the Bible, essentially. The love your neighbor command didn't originate with Jesus when he was on this earth. It's found way back in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This was spoken by God, recorded assumedly by Moses, and given to the people. Love your neighbor is not new. Nor is the standard by which it's supposed to be operated. When God issued the love your neighbor command back in Leviticus, it's love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. Love like you want to be loved. It's the golden rule of standards. The golden rule in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. Treat one another the way you want to be treated. That's the same standard being applied here to love. But when, after Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he said, I've got a new commandment for you. What was new is not the call to love. What was new was the standard by which it would be applied. Because if you look at Mark chapter 12, verse 31, when Jesus gave the greatest command, it says, love your neighbor as yourself, just like Leviticus chapter 19. But in John chapter 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Instead of the standard being loving others like you love yourself, Jesus updated it to being loving others like he loves you. Do you realize how much harder that is? When you consider Jesus' love for you, a love that put him on a cross that he did not deserve, a love that led to his death sacrificial death on your behalf for your benefit, for your good. And he's saying, I want you to love people like that. I don't want you to just love them the way you want to be loved in return. I don't want reciprocity. I want you to love them the way that I've loved you. And my question is, do you love people like that? Do you love the stranger you meet on the street like that? Do you love the person that sits across this auditorium from you like that? Do you love the people in your home like that? Loving the way Jesus loves you. And let's not overlook the fact that he did not call it. He did not call it a new suggestion. He did not call it a new idea. He did not call it a new option or a new possibility. He said it was a new commandment. 
So if you've been baptized into Christ, if you've crucified your old self and put on the new self, if you're walking in the light, then you've accepted loving other people as Jesus loves you as an essential requirement of your life. And that includes even the people who are hard to love. See, these references to the love your neighbor command, they show that loving others is going to be hard. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's impossible. The overarching message of the Bible is that love is a choice. Loving your neighbor is a choice. Think back to those biblical stories about hard-to-love people we began this lesson with. Hosea chose to love his wife in spite of her immoral character, which resulted in adultery. Hosea was instructed by God in chapter 3 and verse 1 to go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And that's exactly what he did. He reports in verses 2 and 3 of that chapter that he bought her. And then he told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. He says, I expect this of you. I expect you to stay with me. I expect you to be faithful to me. And I'm going to do the same to you, even though you have been unfaithful to me. He loved her by choice. Jonathan chose to love David in spite of the difficult circumstances they faced. Jonathan knew David would eventually become king. And even though this meant that Jonathan would never get to be king, it didn't matter to him because he had chosen to love his brother-in-law. Look at what Jonathan said there in 1 Samuel chapter 23 when he went to visit David the, the last time that we know of. He said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Jonathan loved David so much that he wasn't going to fight for the throne. And Joseph chose to love his brothers in spite of the wounds he incurred from the choices they made. Even though Joseph may have initially struggled to forgive his brothers, it's apparent that he really wanted to reconcile with them. Because throughout his interactions with them, he had to remove himself on multiple occasions to, to just break out in tears. And he secretly reimbursed their expenses for the grain they came to purchase. Those acts show that he loved them. Eventually, his desire to be reunited with them overcame his wounds. And in love, he forgave them. And he said this in Genesis chapter 45. Come near to me. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. In verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And by the end of that interaction, we're told that he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. See, we're called to love the hard to love, just like Hosea, just like Jonathan, just like Joseph. And did you pick up on one thing? In all those stories, it was someone in their home. For Hosea, it was his wife. For Jonathan, it was his father and his brother-in-law. For Joseph, it was his brothers. Because sometimes 
the home is the place where we find the hardest to love. So as you consider how to apply this lesson, realize it includes the spouse who never reciprocates your love. The spouse who is selfish and who is stubborn. The spouse who has annoying habits. The spouse who isn't a believer. It includes him or her. And it includes this, hard, this love hard policy. It includes the child who always makes bad decisions and suffers the consequences. The child who doesn't appreciate what you've done for them as their parent. And the child who is a prodigal. And this call to love hard includes the parent who doesn't seem to understand you. The parent who criticizes your decisions. The parent who failed. Or the parent who doesn't deserve honor. And this love your neighbor command includes the relative who gets on your nerves. The relative who antagonizes you. The relative who's always trying to one-up you. The relative who you just don't enjoy being around. And when it comes to our church home, loving our neighbor includes the brother or sister in the church who has wronged us in the past. The brother or sister in the church who disagrees with us on matters of opinion. The brother or sister in Christ who has been judgmental, behaved hypocritically, acted self-righteously. The brother or sister in Christ who refuses to contribute, refuses to participate, refuses to fellowship, refuses to reconcile, or refuses to change. This call to love hard includes even the brother or sister in Christ who has fallen away. And the reason we're called to love the hard to love is because one, at one point in time, you and I were the hard to love. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 of that same chapter goes on to imply that in our sin-stained state, we were enemies, enemies of God. And Jesus is the one declaring, love your enemies. The point is that God loved us when we were hard to love. And that realization led John the Apostle to the following conclusion in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This morning we're reminded of God's love. We realize that there are people who are going to be hard to love. God never hid that from us. And we've listened to the hard instructions about loving others. This morning, if you're here and you realize just how much God loves you and you want to respond to that love, you want to put Christ on in baptism, you want to become a child of God's, then we invite you to come. And if you're here today, and there's someone in your life who is hard to love. And you need this family, this brotherhood, to pray for you, 
to support you as you try to love the hard to love, then we invite you to come. Or if you're here today and you consider everything that's been said about love and you realize you have not loved the way Jesus Christ told you to love, then we invite you to come. Won't you do so while together we stand and sing? I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply staying within, seeking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. Now safe am I, love lifted me, love lifted me, when nothing else could help, love lifted me, love lifted me, love lifted me. completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea, billows his will obey. He your Savior wants to be Appreciate everyone being here today. If you haven't had the opportunity yet, please take a moment and record your attendance. You can use the QR codes uh, in the pew in front of you. We invite you back here this evening at 6 o'clock for worship and at 7 on Wednesday for Bible study. Before we're closed in a prayer, uh, today we're going to sing number 892. 892. <clears throat> the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The steadfast love of the Lord
my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. Therefore I will hope in Him. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we love you and we praise you. You thank you for letting us us be here tonight. Today, please go with us as we leave and help us to show your love to others. This week in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>